I'm Eileen Dunn and this is The God Slot. We begin this week with a good news story. The historic silver plate that was stolen from the library of St Anne's Church of Ireland Cathedral in Belfast some weeks ago has been recovered. The congregation at that particular cathedral will have a happy Christmas. But in the Philippines, life is made just about bearable through the efforts of organisations like Mission Cara. With over 5,000 people dead, 673,000 people displaced and 11.3 million people in need of food, Mission Cara's members are refocusing their efforts to isolated areas that have been untouched by the general relief effort. If you want to help, you can go to their website at www.missioncara.ie And we hear that the dreaded disease polio, once close to eradication worldwide, is resurfacing in Muslim-majority countries where, according to the experts, vaccinations are hard to come by due to war, religious edicts and ignorance. And finally, on Tuesday next, December the 10th, Pope Francis will help launch a global campaign of prayer and action against world hunger. Well, since his election eight months ago, the Pope has had no shortage of people willing to offer him advice on the governance of the Church. This advice has ranged from the eccentric, such as the suggestion that he should appoint eminent Irish women as cardinals, to the intriguing, like the idea that the curia's offices be relocated to Hong Kong. At last, in his apostolic exhortation, The Joy of the Gospel, Francis has given the strongest indication yet of his intentions to rebalance power in the Church. Church. To discuss this document, we're joined by the Most Reverend Brendan Leahy, recently appointed Bishop of Limerick, and by Brendan Butler of the organisation We Are Church. Bishop Brendan, what exactly is an apostolic exhortation and what sort of weight does it carry? Yeah, well, I suppose the very term apostolic refers to the apostles and exhortation means it's something it's encouraging, it's exhorting you. So I suppose the idea is since the time of the apostles, the successors, the bishops, and of course, especially the Pope, the, pe- the, the successor to Peter, have encouraged people and, and taken topics in which they've spoken at. And this would be one, in other words, an exhortation coming from the successor of the apostles, in this case, Peter, encouraging us to focus on evangelization. Now, in as much as, com- as it comes from the, the Pope himself, it, obviously it has weight. It is a document which comes from him. He clearly has written it himself. He says that very definitely. And he himself wants this message to be a priority. So, yes, I think it has great weight. John Tavis, the Vaticanista, Brendan says it challenges complacency at every level. Yes, I think so. And, you know, it brings a sort of freshness into our Catholicism. And the social doctrine of the church was always there, but it, it was never fleshed out as he's doing it. I would hope that through becoming a poorer church, that will mean also that the, the, the huge structures within the Vatican and all the finance and money involved, that will slowly fall away and the re will go back to the Church of the Apostles. Well, a couple of things to take up from that. Bishop Brendan, he talks about a church that gets down and dirty for a start. He also talks, he, he challenges leaders of countries. He challenges this whole European notion that we have and the traditions 
that have grown up in Western Europe as opposed to maybe elsewhere in his own Latin America. And he challenges himself. He says, I can't be asking people to do this if I'm not prepared to do it myself. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what's remarkable about him, that he is himself the first one to be putting into practice what he's asking others to do. We've seen it in all kinds of ways. The kind of the, just the other week, for instance, you may have seen this person with a very unusual uh, facial dis- bodily disease, which really to look at the person was really difficult. And here he goes over and embraces him very warmly, very tenderly. And you can see this is a man who genuinely does try to see Jesus and other people and genuinely tries to go out to meet them and recognize them and learn from them. So, you know, as Brendan says, he is putting before us a whole agenda, but he himself in the first place is trying to live it. But he says, we can't go on as we've always gone on. We've got to, in a new way, discover the joy, the vigour, the spirit, the enthusiasm, the excitement of the gospel and lift ourselves up a little bit, he said, I think, from maybe issues that we've got mired in in the past. He wants us to kind of say, look, let's start again. Can we do that, though? And I mean, fundamentally, will things change? Well, I think the very end of his letter gives us the key for him where he really focuses on the Holy Spirit because he says, really, it isn't, a, it isn't just our effort. And I think the present papacy, of course, is very much linked to what's going on in, in Pope Francis's own life. But it is as if the event is bigger than him. It's, it's, I really think the Holy Spirit's at work here. Somebody I met recently said, a friend of theirs has completely waved the church completely for years, but said, you know, suddenly they rang the other day and said, could you recommend a book to me on the Catholic Church? I'm interested. I must say, look, reading the document myself, I said, number one, it's compelling, it's really readable. But you do find yourself saying, God, this document is calling for conversion. There's no two ways about it, you know, as I read it. You know. Well, it's over 80 pages long. We can't go through the whole lot of it here. But let's pick up on some points. The Eucharist, for example, he says it's not a prize for the perfect, but a powerful medicine and nourishing for the weak. Now, is that a move away from the traditional way that we were told we had to be in the state of grace to receive communion? I, I mean, I, you know, I'd say he's probably not going to get into the thing of I'm changing the teaching about the state of grace or otherwise. But what he clearly is saying to us, let's be careful here that we don't kind of give the, 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 the notion that only perfect people can come to mass. Uh, that's, he's definitely not saying that. What he's saying is, look, the doors of the church, as he puts it, must be wide open. And we must make sure the church is a place where people feel welcome. And we've got to work at that. that that's what he's saying, I think. Brendan, have you a view on that? Yeah, I, I think also a very important, two very important issues come in here, and I think he has mentioned them already. That is the uh, issue of uh, Catholics who have been married and now are in second relationships, and also gay people. So uh, at the moment, they are officially excluded, not from Mass, but from receiving the, the Eucharist. If the Church is a family, Everybody is welcome, not just into the church, but into total communion, because within our movement, we have many gay people and divorced people, and they are very, very much, they live fantastic Christian lives. And in a sense, I think they represent uh, the spirit, as you're talking about the spirit, and it's a census fidelium. They are the representative of the spirit of God is speaking through them to us. And if we're able to say, well, that is real Christian love, that is God love, the origin of that is God. So these people are living in a God relationship. And as such, who are we to exclude them? I suppose an image that I like from the Pope very early on, he said it very early on, but he repeats it once or twice slightly in this document, is this. You know, the, the, you know, the prodigal son parable, mm-hmm. where the father figure is waiting there, even from, from a distance, the father figure is waiting. 
He waits for the people to come back. And then when the son comes back, the father runs out to meet him, clasps him tenderly, beautifully. And the Pope says, I'm sure he didn't get down that day to saying, and what you do with the money? You know, (laughs) the first moment is celebrate the fact of God's love. Absolutely. And then he said, I'm sure a few days later, he got down to talking about the details. And I think there's something like that here. What he's saying is, not that we ignore all the teachings of the church over the centuries, but that we really have to make sure the primary message is getting across which is what you're saying, the love of God, the mercy of God. That's the first and foremost. That's the primary message that you're the centre of the world for God because Jesus has died for you. And I think if we look at the survey that that's ongoing at the moment in advance of the Extraordinary Synod next year, those questions come up there. You know, how many of such relationships do you have in your parish and how are you dealing with them and how are the pastoral? So it, it's something that's being talked about, clearly. Yeah, I mean, I think there's no doubt we, we have to make sure our parish communities are welcoming, open communities. Absolutely. Now, whether or not you go change in teaching after that, that's not the question I'm dealing with here. I think what the Pope is saying is let's lift ourselves above all these specific questions and make sure our communities are welcoming communities. He also talks about, he says, no one can demand that religion should be relegated to the inner sanctum of personal life. So he wants people basically to, be, to stand up and be counted. I think what has happened in the past, when you think of most people in Ireland have gone to Catholic-run schools and secondary schools, they've gone on to college. I used to teach RE myself, and you'd say is, I mean, what effect really did all of that have on on uh, this generation? Because we've never had such corruption within within, you know, society and then even with our clerical abuse, all through the different facets of society. And young people have just thrown their hands up, really. They've said, well, uh, where are we going? It's an unjust society, corrupt society, and I won't have anything more to do with it. I'm getting out of this country. And in a sense, as the Archbishop of Dublin has said, I think he has said, we've lost two generations. And it seems to be, I think, what has happened is there's a huge gulf between the magisterium of the church, that is to say the Pope, the cardinal, archbishops and bishops. There's a gulf between that sector and the laity. And in actual fact, I would think the vast, vast proportion of lay lay Catholics committed do not obey the strictures of the Humana Vitae. That is, they do practice artificial uh, birth control. So I think this is a new area in which, and we'd hope to continue, I think we should have lots of dialogues like this as bishops and laity, and we listen to one another. And Bishop Brendan, he talks too about the clergy uh, higher up, but even the priests as serving the laity as opposed to the other way around. Yeah, absolutely. There's no doubt about that. This present pope speaks about service, speaks about dialogue speaks about building the community together and also about not giving in to pessimism. There is, it is true to say we could be tempted to think things are going really badly, but I think we have to always look, that, uh, look at the fact that the Holy Spirit is guiding the church. There's new things going on. If we compare where we were, where we are now with 50 years ago, like a lot of great things have gone on in the 50 years in terms of dialogue, lay commitment, lay ministries. That's developing, it's growing. I know people would love Many things are going much faster and we need to dialogue a lot about that. But it is happening. Let's come to the notion of women and women priests. He talks about involving women more, but he says the notion of women's priests is not open for discussion. Now, how do you interpret that? Do you think he means 
it's not worth discussing it or it can't be discussed. Yeah, I think what he's saying, trying to say there too is the same thing. We need to get the bigger picture here. The fact of the matter is that there is a new emergence push of the Holy Spirit to to rediscover the role of women in the life of the church. And what he put, the way he puts it is this. Sacramentally, the priest represents Christ giving his life as we see in the Eucharist. So in that sense, he says, it's not open to discussion. Because what we've got confused sometimes about is that we end up saying, the sacramental ministry of a priest is equal to decision-making powers. So that's the mistake. The big thing is everybody baptized is baptized into the dignity of the holiness of Christians. All of us are equal at that level. And there we have to explore much more about decision-making processes. Well, it is one of the primary uh, aims of We Are Church that all ministries in the church should be open to women. Now, we have various women who feel they have a vocation, but they're not really that pushed at the moment because they say the church is too clericalized. Well, so, I, yeah, somebody posted to me the other day that it was another theologian that was actually more out of respect for women that you wouldn't want women <laughs> ordained at the moment. Yes, I'm I mean, not sure about the, that either. What, is it? One of the women theologians in America that said, look, we've gone beyond that issue. Yes, mm. yeah. Precisely because it's of John that. Chichester, I think. But uh, at the same time, it is a question, I think, of justice. And we say God is, has a feminine face and a masculine face. And the church is missing the feminine face. I think there's, however, you know, also in the Catholic world, a, a, a phenomenon going on which a lot of women are involved actually in lay ministries in a way that, funny enough, you don't find in other churches. So there's something happening there in the in the Catholic world. But it's often in the word of ancillary. And I was just looking up ancillary is the Latin for a maid. I think a lot of our women stopped uh, helping well out in the church. The church would collapse in the morning because they do all the flower work, they clean. So it's a lot of that uh, very important work, but yet it's ancillary work. It, yeah, well, it, that's true, Brendan, to an extent, but not completely. Know. I mean, you have a lot of women now, for instance, involved in um, obviously school teaching, school hospital chaplaincy, prison yes, chaplaincy, yeah, okay. a lot of women moving into all those kind of chaplaincies, which isn't necessarily the same in other churches. You have to be ordained a priest. But there we're back to the clericalism issue. Mm-hmm. The trouble yes, is, yeah. I, some women say to me is what I do want is that there'll be a few women now part of that same clique mm-hmm. that are clerical. And that's what we have to be careful of, all of us, you know. He hits at the politicians. He's terribly anti-trickle down economics, which was such a buzzword that we were all familiar with in the nineteen yeah, nineties and two thousands. With regard to economics, his his statements probably probably some of the strongest statements are about that, and there's no doubt about that. A trickle down economy, as he says, number one, we'd no proof that it ever worked, and 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 we're seeing the devastating effects of it. And he speaks highly of politicians. To be fair to him, he does say it is one of the forms of love that is, you know, to be we have to pray that we will have many great politicians, but that there will be politicians that will put the care of the poor centre stage in their in their thinking. Time catching up with us here now, but one final thorny issue, the issue of abortion and no no change on the absolute ban. Yes, I mean, he, he speaks actually very well about abortion where he says, look, it's not progressive to eliminate life. He said sometimes we, we get the idea that only those who are progressive, you know, uh, you know, you're a bit old fashioned if you're against abortion. He said that's not the case. He said life is an end in itself. So he said it can never be progressive to eliminate life. In that sense, I think, you know, he's putting it very clearly to us that the, the, young, the, the, those, the, the unborn are defenceless, they're voiceless, and we need people to speak up for them. He doesn't allow, though, though he acknowledges that more could be done maybe to help women who are in yes, difficult situations, maybe as the result of rape and stuff yeah. like that. But he's not, he's, he ain't for moving. 
No, because the point of what he says is, you know, you can't eliminate a life to solve a problem. Brendan? I think if mother's life is threatened, I think Catholic theology will accept that a abortion is acceptable. We all say we don't want abortion. That is an, an absolute. But when we put it in a context, and it's always in a context of a woman, unfortunately, left and she has to decide where, you know, what's happening with her life. And I think that is the, the shocking part of it when you contextualise it. And if a woman feels that her life is threatened, obviously through, you know, the idea of a woman having to carry a, a dead fetus for until nine months or whatever it happens like that, I mean, that's, that, that is outlandish. And so we have to find different ways and... OK, we won't call it abortion, but at the same time, it, it is, you know, the destruction of life because of the life of the mother is threatened. We cannot just go on like the old system. We let both come to, to birth and one dies. And as you, it was well, in the I past. Well, I think that's completely mothers, accurate you know, to the Catholic yeah, picture, you know yeah. what I mean? Effectively, what the Catholic Church's position is that the direct taking of the life of the unborn oh. is, is what is... Wrong. Yes, the wrong, yes, yeah. No doubt we'll come back to these matters again. Yes. Bishop Brendan Nehu, Brendan Butler of right. Rear Church, thank you both for thank joining you us tonight. Thank you, Eileen. Sunday is the Feast of the Immaculate Conception of Mary, one of the great Marian feasts in the Catholic Church. So this week we bring you a report on one of the most controversial Marian apparitions in the world today. On the 24th of June 1981, six young children claimed to have seen a vision of the Blessed Virgin in the poor Catholic farming village of Medjugorje. Almost 32 years later, more than 40 million pilgrims have descended on the village in Bosnia-Herzegovina for many different reasons, some out of curiosity, some for thanksgiving for the good in their lives, some to pray for a sick relative or friend, or others who simply hope to awaken a lost spirituality in their lives. The visionaries call Our Lady the Gospa, and allege that she appears every day. However, despite the many fruits which allegedly come out of Medjugorje, opinion remains divided with regard to the authenticity of the apparitions. The Vatican will give its verdict on the phenomenon next year, but recently issued a statement saying that clerics and the faithful are not permitted to participate in meetings, conferences or public celebrations during which the credibility of such apparitions would be taken for granted. This led to visionary Ivan Dragicevich cancelling a number of scheduled appearances across the US. Louise Hall visited the shrine at Medjugorje in June and begins her report with priest, musician and composer Father Liam Lawton. I suppose uh, that I probably was like all the other young people of my time in the 80s. When I came to Medjugorje I was astounded uh, it was just before the Iron Curtain fell, and so the people who came here, particularly from behind the Iron Curtain, had to make great sacrifices. Medjugorje was one of the small villages in the mountains that didn't succumb to the communist way of life. The people uh, kept the faith. So it was into this environment that the outside world, including people like myself, started to stream, you know, and um, I suppose... 
in one sense, what was happening was so countercultural, you know, to a world that was telling us there is no God and, you know, I suppose materialism was really, really taking over. But also as well, Father Slavko was a great visionary. He had been sent in to close this place down and because he was a doctor of psychology and he was a very intelligent man. He also had studied parapsychology and, you know, after a number of months, he stood up one day and said, no, I can't say this is not happening. In fact, the opposite is there is something happening here. And then he brought a number of world-renowned scientists and doctors uh, to Medjugorje to start examining the facts and the children themselves who were subject to many, many scientific uh, examinations. But then the war came and there were terrible, terrible atrocities. And I suppose there were so, so many thousands of children who were left as orphans, who were left homeless, who were left in, in, in a lot of uh, deprivation and poverty. So the dream was to set up a centre where these children would grow up knowing love. And what he wanted to do was to try and reach out to young people and to tell them that, number one, that God exists, and secondly, that he and, and Mary, who they call the Gospel, love them. And because of my love of music, he asked me if I would, I suppose, use the, the gift of music to try and help. So different nationalities came together and we formed a kind of a committee that would work on a festival, particularly for young people, that would happen in August. The first youth festival had, I think, about 7,000 young people. And now, 20 years on, you know, there's between... 60 and 100,000 young people come in here every August. Not everyone is impressed by the happenings in Medjugorje. This is Mariologist and theologian Donald Foley. Um, I think there must be some diabolical elements because there's no question that the visionary saw something, but all the aspects of it are negative in comparison with other apparitions. The, the thing about Medjugorje is it's more like false apparitions or unapproved apparitions than it is like the genuine ones. But you've got the whole thing about the Franciscan quarrel, if you like, with the, the local bishop. And really there's been a huge amount of disobedience because in 1975 Pope Paul VI issued a decree compelling the Franciscans to do what the, the bishop asked them. But, the, but they, they didn't. I mean, it's a whole long history to it. Because the um, Ottoman Empire was was uh, ruling that part of the you know the world for so long the Muslim uh, control, the only people who stayed with the, the local people were the Franciscans and this very close bond uh, developed between them, and then when the Ottoman Empire was sort of kicked out in the nineteenth century, uh, the people wanted to hang on to the Franciscans they were and the Franciscans didn't want to give up all the parishes so it was a very very slow process. So you've got this whole negative background which people who go there don't know about, basically. Medjugorje has been called the greatest confessional in the world. And that's not said in any triumphalist way at all, but it's said in, in, in I suppose, in all sincerity that it's the place where people who are really broken can find healing and peace and feel that God is really, really listening to them. Because Medjugorje is, is a sort of opposition with the, the local bishop, the, the church is not involved in any official way, in, in assessing any of these uh, miraculous, allegedly miraculous cures. And the problem, of course, is with a lot of diseases, say things like multiple sclerosis, you can go into spontaneous remission. So it's not, maybe not a cure at all, it's just the person got better. 
things are not being channeled through the church, so there's no absolute proof that um, something is miraculous. Donald Foley. But we'll end as we began with Father Liam Lawton. I was saying to the people during the week, you know, that it always reminds me of, you know, the, the story at Christmas where the wise men came and they didn't know what they were looking for, but they knew that there was something happening. And their search brought them, in fact, not to a huge castle or to a great kingdom, but it brought them to a, a very humble, humble stable where they found a baby. But it's really interesting in the Gospel then it says that they had a dream and they went home a different way or a different route. And you usually find that, that people who come to a place like this go home a different route or a different way. Father Liam Lawton ending Louise Hall's report on the phenomenon that is Medjugorje. Louise is the editor of Medjugorje, What It Means to Me, published by Columba Press. There's more religious output on RTE television on Sunday evening when Blonadny Coffee meets John Kenny. His life was turned upside down by a crippling industrial accident which not only took lengthy treatment but an unexpected discovery of faith to overcome. That's the moment of truth at half past ten on Sunday on RTE1 TV. And that's our programme for this week. The email address is godslot at rte.ie. The phone number is 01-208-2039. Our postal address is The Godslot, RTE Radio 1, Dublin 4, and you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Until the same time next week then, go goody Because I gotta have faith. Mm-hmm.